A salary is the drug they give you when they want you to forget about your dreams. Welcome to the Corporate Dropout Podcast. I'm your host, Alessia Citro. After a successful career in tech, suffering from burnout, stress, and anxiety, I walked away from a multiple six-figure career to chase my passions and purpose as a coach and entrepreneur. This show is going to inspire, equip, and empower you to do the same. Let's get it. Hello, friends. Today, I'm interviewing Taylor Shoup, co-founder of Stance Socks and founder and CEO of Future Stitch. On the off chance you haven't heard of Stance, they are the official sock of the MLB, the NBA, and Jay-Z even rapped about them. Taylor is also vice chairman of Yeezy and a board member at the Thirst Project. He also happens to be my next door neighbor. (laughs) Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I have to tell you a funny story before we get into the interview. The idea to interview actually came up because on the first meeting I had with my podcast producer pre-launch, he's telling me, okay, think about guests that you would like to bring on for interviews. And by the way, where I see people go wrong is they bring on friends who don't have much to say or like (laughs) their next door neighbor. And I said, oh, actually, yeah. (laughs) I was like, wait, actually, we do want to interview my next door neighbor. And now here you are. (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that goes that goes right along the lines of taking money, you know, too. You know, you don't want to take money from friends, family, from from next door neighbors. Yeah. Right. That's like that's you don't want to take money from anybody too close where it's like too personal, where if you lost that money, it could really create a bad relationship. A thousand so percent. It's interesting. And what's the saying that the borrower slave to the lender? So like Thanksgiving mm-hmm. dinner, it's a little different if you owe <laughs> money. So totally. <laughs> that gravy gets extra salty. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. So in preparing to talk with you today, I was watching an interview where you talked about working at your dad's law firm when you were 14. And you said it was this experience that made you know that you wanted to be your own boss. I actually worked for my dad when I was 14. So I can really relate to this. (laughs) Did you begin to prepare at a young age to become an entrepreneur? And if so, what did you do to learn and set yourself up for success? Okay, it's a good question. Um, I didn't prepare. (laughs) <laughs> I I just That's a great like, answer. <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't prepare at all. It was sort of natural for me, you know. I I'm a person with um a high risk tolerance, and you know I'm fairly extroverted, and I like talking to people. I've always loved sales. Um, the experience in my dad's office just taught me that I didn't want to ever uh, be confined in an environment that was just full of that, like you know, like these meaningless tasks. I just felt like there was this element of drudgery in the work I was doing around, you know, replacing old law library texts with new editions. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it was at that point where I just decided I, I want to do my own thing and I want to have fun with whatever I do. And, um, you know, although entrepreneurship was sort of innate for me, I've also seen tons of people more successful, more successful than me who have um, lower IQs or, or higher IQs or lower EQs or higher EQs or introverts, not only extroverts. And I think, it, I think really anybody can become a successful entrepreneur. I do think it takes, uh, you know, some risk tolerance and, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I was like a kid who like my eighth grade best was um, most likely to, to jump off the empire state building 
um, by bungee jump, <laughs> right? Like that was me. And so it was, it was really just like, um, it was sort of easy for me to take these risks. And um, I think like, I realized rather quickly that I could, I could really sell anything. And I also, I think one thing that set me apart maybe from other kids my age when I was young was I thought long-term. And so, you know, Christmas would roll around. It'd be the one time, or I guess my parents really never bought us gifts except for twice your birthdays and Christmases. And I would think about like how I could turn my Christmas gift into a money-making machine. So I would, I was always asking for things that could produce something, right? Like um, a snow cone machine, a cotton candy machine, a rock tumbler, you know, was those sort of things that, that I would ask them to give me so that I could make money off, off of the community. <laughs> well, I remember hearing in an interview too, that you were like selling mistletoe or cutting mistletoe off of people's Christmas trees and selling it and doing lemonade yep. stands and all that. So it's, it's just been like in your blood, basically. You're just wired to, to be an entrepreneur, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I also, I guess I have such a passion for this stuff. I know it's easy for me to say that entrepreneurship is something that, um, you know, is easy to do because I do have some, some of these qualities that maybe are, you know, a little bit more, I think, um, I guess, um, you know, prepared me to be an entrepreneur. But I think like, if you just put yourself out there and you focus on something that the consumer needs and the consumer wants, you're going to be, you're going to be successful. You know, um, yeah. I th- I, it's just like such a part of who I am. It's such a meaningful thing to me to create things that people need and p- create jobs that people need. Yes. Um, and, and so, and that's how I measure, have measured my success. It's, it's been beyond, you know, money. It's been how many, like how many jobs have I created? Cause that's, that's really meaningful, you know? And one thing that we'll get into is also the quality of life that your employees have when working these jobs. That really seems to be something that sets you apart. I can't wait to dive into that because I was just oh, thank you all about this and preparation for this interview. So actually kind of on that note, one thing that really impressed me about you too was finding out that your college major was Chinese. So this is like the early 2000s really shows a lot of foresight did you know back then that you would end up starting a company that would require manufacturing abroad or what led you to have that major? Yeah, that was my goal. At 16, when I was a flower delivery boy, I worked for a Taiwanese man and it was the best job ever. And I think it would be amazing to go back to that at some point once I retire. Because <laughs> like everybody is so happy to see you as a flower delivery boy. Um, <laughs> he, I, just, I, I was like, one day I would love to own a global business. And the Chinese language and the culture was so fascinating to me, so different, so unique. Um, I've always loved languages and Chinese was one that I just felt like was so um, fun to learn. It's a tonal language. And so, and I, and I sort of had an ear for it. And so I, uh, I picked it up. I actually was, I took classes from him a couple times a week oh, yeah. after my shifts. So he taught me all of the phonetics and then, um, you know, I was able to go to Taiwan to learn it for about two years. And that took me to the next level where I could, you know, I learned how to read and learn how to write. Um, and yeah, I think a a big part of my soul is, is Chinese, you know, at this point, I I love the culture and it's, uh, I think there's so much that we have in common and it's also one of my life's purposes to sort of create bridges across the Pacific as much as possible. I think it's important for humanity. Um, and one of my long-term goals, Now more than ever, the risks are so high 
Uh, and one of my long-term goals is to take uh, one of my companies public on the Shanghai index. And the plan is to do that by 2023. And if I'm able to do that and nothing else changes, I'll be the first Caucasian to ever take a company public in China. And I think that's really interesting. Very huge accomplishment. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What are the odds that I live next door to someone this interesting? It's cool. <laughs> please <laughs> the loudest, the loudest neighbor with the most amount of construction with the loudest kids who are always fighting. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, you live next door to two Italians. Well, three, if you count my daughter. And so there's a lot of yelling over here too. So it's so all good. Cute. <laughs> Thank yeah, God right. she's cute. Otherwise, uh, it would be, it would be challenging. <laughs> Totally. No kidding. So you've been an entrepreneur basically forever, but talk to me about the first, I don't want to say real venture because they're all real, but like, what was the first venture that you were, you know, employing people and really had a lot of skin in the game? And what did you learn from it? Mm -hmm. The first venture where I was employing people was ISIS. And that I started, I believe in like 2004, 2005. And it's ISIS. And I still own the trademarks. Um, and fortunately, that one didn't work out because that would have been a rebranding nightmare. Yep. But, uh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I heard was, you talking uh, about that on an interview and I had to laugh a bit. Things happen for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were. Um, so I guess the opportunity there was um, Mac had come back and you know Steve Jobs was back in the helm. The Mac computer became a thing on, on college campuses, and it really wasn't uh, before, before then. And I looked at that laptop accessory market as one that was very stale and colorless. And, you know, and there wasn't much functionality with them either. And so I thought there might be opportunity to, to breathe some innovation and some color and some design into laptop cases. You know, since this is uh, on college campuses, right? The laptop was like the most valuable thing that you that you had, and so we started this company to sort of accessorize, but to also create greater protection around Macs. And so we got into you know the Apple stores and into Fry's Electronics and Circuit City and Follette, Barnes and Noble, and in 2008, I think I had an offer on the table to sell it. And it was a, a few, it was several million dollars, and I was a still a college student, and I didn't do it. That I was going to take over the entire like consumer electronics protection game, and then a year later, a year after that, we lost our biggest customer. I made negative fifty thousand dollars that year, you know, and I was just like, uh, I remember like weeping on uh, the floor of our apartment to you know to my wife, I'm like, hey, you gotta you gotta help me here because. I'm like failing at everything I'm doing. And, um, you know, I just felt like the worst partner ever to her. Uh, and, you know, luckily she had a job and she was kicking ass and she was able to shoulder like the bulk of all of our debt. Uh, and I transitioned the business model into something that was a little bit um, less risky. Uh, one focused on design, development, manufacturing using my trading company that I'd set up in China. And uh, about a year after that, I had paid back all of my debt. The business was profitable. Um, and I had an offer to sell that one, which I, which I took. And then we started Stance. So 
that's sort of the the long and short of the entire ISIS experience. It ended up in you know catastrophic failure. Well, I don't know about but, that. You ended up emerging victorious, right? It's not like you went bankrupt with it or anything. And and also, it's worth noting you lost the biggest customer, which was Circuit City, because the recession hit and it just like basically almost overnight, right? Yeah, and they had so much inventory, and we were so far down the line in terms of like the debtors collecting. We didn't have like the the legal budget either to you know, try to get more out of them. So that, yeah, that was, that was a really tough part of my life, but gosh, I built so much character. And I mean, that's the thing, going back to entrepreneurship, like the lessons that you learn when it's on your own dime and you're like, you know, you're in a situation where you just have to try everything to make it work. Um, you, the, the amount of fortitude and the strength you gain, um, is, is pretty like it's second to none, you know? So, uh, I don't regret it. I don't regret at all starting that company. Um, and then obviously later on, we were able to sell the second one and it prepared me to to start Stance, which was an opportunity that um, kind of came out of nowhere and was way bigger than we ever expected it to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Stance is a huge name, right? And as I'm looking at the company and why you founded it, basically what I gathered is that there was this major gap and the sock market, you filled it. And what was interesting about this too is there's five co-founders. You were the chief product officer until founding Future Stitch. So tell us, like, how did the five of you come together and start the venture? Because when I hear five co-founders, to me, maybe it's because I like am kind of a control freak. Like that sounds like too many cooks in the kitchen. So like, tell us about that and how you all <laughs> balanced each other out. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, that was tough. I mean, I'm I'm the I'm the most unmanageable one out of the group. Um, I was really <laughs> the only one that was the entrepreneur, you know. But I was also the youngest by like ten or eleven years. Uh, and when this opportunity came up. I I jumped on it because I felt like it would be great to finally have partners, um, specialists in key areas that I just wasn't good at. I was great at building products. I was good with industrial design. I was good with consumer um, engagement. I didn't understand marketing very well. I didn't understand sales. Um, I mean, I could sell, but I didn't understand the infrastructure of the sales process. I didn't understand finance. Uh, and scale through finance and things like that. And so this team that came together, it was just this group of specialists and they all had thick skin. They were all very good at what they did, like top of class. And they could deal with this like wily, rambunctious little asshole named Taylor <laughs> Shoup who <laughs> wanted to challenge everybody all the time uh, because I wasn't, you know, I never worked for anybody really. So, I mean, uh, when I started college, I was already doing my own thing. And so uh, it, was, it was tough for me to like domesticate myself. But because like these guys were so good at, and had like a very specific craft uh, or specialization, it, it just worked. It, everything worked together like a symphony. And, um, and we also did a lot of preparation. So I was involved long before we founded the company. Uh, you know, my uh, co-founder, Jeff, he was the finance guy and he eventually became the CEO. He sort of was the ringleader, brought us all together. And, you know, we would, we were just talking about creating a business together. He knew that I was great at building product. He was really good at finance, has a VC background. And he had just taken a company public or was about to take a company, a company public called Skull Candy. He's like, Hey, we got to get on the next 
product category between like me and you i think we could build something pretty amazing together let's try to find some white space and i didn't really understand the concept of white space right i always felt like i never really i don't know i'd never really cared about it I'd created like three businesses up until that point and you know it was always just like based on personal interests where i felt like consumer maybe consumer needs weren't being addressed so i guess you would call that white space but like he was looking at it a little bit differently and he he had like eight different variables that he was assessing. Uh, and it was like flywheel, like how often the product can be cons- uh, consumed, like or repurchased. He was looking at e-commerce friendly, like, you know, ship costs, handling costs, things like that. Um, SKU productivity, like how many SKUs you needed for the general consumer. Um, he was looking at, I mean, there was gross margins, lack of innovation, you know, like all, all these different things. And so we would, we would like walk down the aisles of big supermarkets and department stores, just like making assessments and like jotting down, like, you know, all these different categories. And we kept narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and, um, and socks just kept coming up. And I was always a sock guy. I love good quality hosiery. I love a sock that was durable, that fit really well. I love seamless toe closures. And I love, and I love the manufacturing process of socks because it was like, it was more like, science it required a lot more engineering than other types of textile manufacturing like cut and sew jackets and denim and stuff like that right so this category just kept coming to the top and then eventually we um we decided it was the one and we're like this could be a 50 million dollar company let's build this thing and and then we'll sell it and then you know taylor you can go back to your you know solo entrepreneurial quest but like let's build this as a group and let's exit in five to ten years and um and then we got really lucky and the, you know, I think coming out of a recession or actually being in a recession really helped us because like consumers wanted that gratification from purchasing something, but they couldn't afford a pair of true religion jeans, uh, but they could buy a $10 pair of socks and they got a similar feeling of satisfaction. And, and also like the white space was real. We were going into these surf and skate accounts and there'd be like 80 pairs of shoes on the wall and then like a basket with five or six pairs of just basic jacarded socks. And so it was like so easy to, to get these entrances. And then I realized, okay, like white space is key because like this is new revenue. I didn't have to compete with anybody else. And so going into distribution became so easy. And I don't care, like I know most entrepreneurs that sell products tend to focus on DTC first, but I, I still think there's no complete replacement for wholesale for being in brick and mortar. I think brick and mortar is so key. I think it's the like the cheapest way to to gain eyeballs, to gain exposure. I think where you sell is almost as important as what you sell. Uh, and and so, you know, we place most of our investment dollars there and that helped us grow the e-commerce uh, business by getting by building the memory structures in a physical space. And um, yeah, in 2017 it became uh, in our series D at that point the world's most valuable sock brand. I know there's not many sock brands out there, to be honest. Um, but that, <laughs> but that was cool. I know you're talking about white space, but no, that's still, that's still a big deal though. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, what's also really cool is like that, that industry has more than doubled since we started it. And that's an old ass industry. Yeah. Um, you know, it went from 20 billion to now 45 billion and it continues to grow every year. And so we brought sort of an awareness to this commoditized category that was like this race to the bottom for years and years, even though it's like, I mean, really important. And you can tell it's really important when you don't have good socks, when you have a sock that slips down, when it should be a a no-show or like you have, you know, a hole in a sock or, you know, you're a runner and you have hot spots in your sock, you know, whatever. Like 
good quality yeah. hosiery actually meant something. Um, even, even though most consumers didn't sort of see it or were conditioned to not see it because it was such a commodity up until that point. I would totally agree with that. I mean, even having run two marathons, it's been a minute, but like if you didn't have good socks for those mm-hmm. training runs and the race itself, like you were dead in the water, like don't even bother going out. So, and I'm sure there's so many athletes. I mean, the fact that you're the official sock for the NBA and the MLB, like these are guys who need good socks too, right? So I think it goes way beyond just like the cool vanity piece of having really sweet looking socks, right? Yep. 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 And he was so weird. This is like totally a total tangent, but it's a funny story is like, there's a superstition associated with socks. And we've seen it with tons of athletes. Wait, tell, like, tell us th- more about this. I love superstitions and I love funny stories. So okay, okay. So <laughs> there, I won't, I won't. I don't know if I should use his name. Okay, it starts with a law and ends with a brawn. Um, <laughs> I I had to go. I had to go up to meet with this guy because there was an official complaint about our socks, and it was like forty eight hours before the first season of Stance on Court, and. He had filed a complaint with the players' union. Well, actually, it actually wasn't him. It was it was another guy that was on his team, and but we knew it was him, right? Because he's obviously the guy with the biggest voice, and he always does stuff like this. And he had kicked out. He basically gotten Spalding and their new ball kicked off the court at one point. Oh, so wow. yeah, um, I went up to meet him in the Cleveland locker room, and and I walk in and. They told me to just like go straight in the locker room, and I've obviously done I've done that a few times. I've been meeting with athletes, but he's like sitting there and like or laying there in briefs, being massaged, and he's like, "What are you doing in here?" And I was like, "We have a meet- we have a meeting," and he's like, "Can you see? I'm getting a massage." I was like, "Oh yeah, sorry, I'll be outside." But it was like so incredibly awkward, and this guy's like larger than life, and his body is like Herculean, you know, and like so he comes out. And he's like, yeah, what do you want? And I'm like, hey, I just want to like, I want to share like our socks and talk to you about like how much better they are than the previous socks you were wearing. And I think this is really going to enhance your game. And this is why. And then I like pull out the socks and he, he grabs them from me and he throws them on the ground. He's like, these things are <laughs> shit. Not a positive way. Not the shit. <laughs> these things are straight up shit. Oh my God. And, uh, and I was like, okay. I'm like, well, hey, I'm like, we're, I'm like, you know, we're working on like, you know, the latest Italian machinery. We've hired all these guys from Nike. Like there's more loft. It's more thermoregular. Um, it has higher moisture wicking properties. You know, I'm going through all the science and he's like, yeah, how long have you been in performance sports? I'm like, I mean, me personally, I'm like, never. <laughs> but my team has, and they're good. Like they're really good. You know? And he's like, yeah, I just don't see it. I, and I'm like, okay, well, hey, what do you want? Like, you tell me what you want. And he's like, I want a sock that I can walk out to my mailbox, which is about 100 yards from my front door in the snow without shoes on and not be cold. And I'm like, and I kind of laughed, like thinking this guy's just messing with me, right? And he's dead serious. And, and, and I'm like, well, what do you like? You want a snow sock? He's like, he's like, he's like, this isn't funny. He's like, I'll show you what I want. And he goes to his locker and he has a pair of socks from high school where he was like, you know, pronounced King James. And these socks were from this like retired mill in Ohio called Twin Cities. And he's like, I want this exact same sock. And it was the thickest, nastiest acrylic, like the worst material you could possibly wear 
in performance sports, right? Like it would feel like a, a plastic bag is wrapped around your foot, right? So oh I'm like, God. you really want these socks? He's like, yeah, you need to make these things the same exact way. And then I will wear them. And so he was the only one in the entire NBA who had a custom pair of stand socks. I went back to our headquarters. Luckily, I had had some acrylic yarns. Uh, and I had my, you know, we have our own R and D center and I just pumped out, I pumped out like 200 pair overnight, made everybody stay so we could get King James to socks. And, um, he wore them and he won that year. The Cavs won. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was really grateful. He actually was super cool after that. He just needed some attention and he needed, he needed the sock that he wore in high school when he won all those championships. He wanted the Cavs to come back and he felt like there was some sort of superstitious value these high school socks that he used to wear. And so we had to recreate them. Wow. I wonder yeah. what his feet looked like after all oh. those games and what they might have looked what they like. like. Worn... Oh, yeah. He should have <laughs> kept with the moisture wicking. I think he would have been better <laughs> off. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's probably the best like tangent funny story that will get told on the show. I don't know if anyone that comes on after you will be able to compete with a LeBron story, but I mean, we'll see. You never know. <laughs> Hey, I like the guy now. I think, he, I mean, obviously, tremendous athlete. No trash oh, yeah. talking. I do not want to fight LeBron James. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone would. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so the last question on stance before we move on, I'm, I'm really curious about the scaling of this thing. So part of my background, I worked at Salesforce for a number of years and mm-hmm. literally had thousands of conversations with growing businesses across all industries, common denominator that was a challenge was scale. So how would you say, I mean, I'm sure that this is a really loaded question, but like, what would the simple answer be for how you and the co-founders went from a startup to the largest sock company in the world? Okay, so I think it, the white space was key. Um, and the selling being so easy was a big part of why we were successful. For sure. That allowed us to scale. Um, The capital, of course, was a big part of it. And luckily, we had relationships in venture. I'll say luckily and unluckily. Um, You know, when you raise venture, I feel like you sell a piece of your soul. I think that, you know, for all the entrepreneurs out there who want to start a business, I think you should look for strategic investors first. That means people who can help you beyond just the value of money, people who have maybe experience in areas that maybe you don't have experience in or who have connections uh, within maybe distribution channels that you don't have. I feel like strategic dollars are always the best dollars. Um, But you you get to a certain point where it's harder and it gets harder and harder to raise strategic dollars, Um, you know, because the amount that you need is so, so large. And most um, strategic investors, they tend to have you know, a very focused amount of capital that they invest and they, they tend to have a lot of different um, projects going and, and, you know, and tend to have a, an investment mix that um, isn't focused on one big asset. And so working with an, a venture fund that's, you know, supported by tons of LPs who are putting money in uh, allows them to sort of hedge their bets. And they, you know, I mean, you know, you, you know Silicon Valley um, just as much as I do. But I mean, most of those ventures uh, fail. They find, I mean, it's like one in four that are actually successful. Uh, but those are oftentimes very successful, 100x, 1,000x. Um, you know, for us, getting capital was essential because we were just growing too fast. And you couldn't turn your capital fast enough to support the growth. Uh, and I still have that problem now with, 
future stitch, although it's a, it's it's a little bit of a different problem. It's it's a harder problem because I'm working on such small margins. Having large margins, the reason why it's so critical at the beginning is because that working capital that's generated off of a sale can can create scale, can generate growth that otherwise you wouldn't be able to have. It also allows you to make a lot of mistakes. And and those mistakes don't become, you know, death sentences to your business. And so, you know, I'm in a different game now than I was. But back then, you know, we're growing sometimes like between 300 and 400% a year for the first few wow. years. And so Great having sources of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good problem. You know, I think that... But, you know, there's always there's always the offset. There's always polarity, you know, and... and on the flip side of raising that money, there was now, you know, this shelf life to the capital. And we had a board that was full of individuals who needed a return on their money in a short period of time, you know, five to seven years. And you get into a situation where, you know, you, you're sort of chasing an exit that's undefined because the goalposts is continually moved. Right. Like for us, like initially it was growth rate of revenue. It was multiple on revenue, but it had to have a certain growth rate. It was like 30% or above. Um, and, you know, a lot of that valuation methodology came from tech, came from like Amazon. And then the goalpost shifted and it was like, no, we got to actually have, it's now multiple of EBIT uh, or EBITDA. And and you know that became really challenging for us because we were we were all growth and now we had to scale things back you know we had to focus on creating actual positive cash flow actual net income and and so you know we began to make like choices that were almost like we were taking a mortgage out on our brand to support the growth like we were focusing now on bottom line and so that meant like maybe extracting certain utilities from the product or qualities from the product, or maybe, you know, teaming up with a big license like a Disney or a Marvel that maybe we wouldn't have done in the same way, or let's just say with the same distribution, but kind of had to, to get that the dollars up on the bottom line. And so that's why I would just like always urge anybody who asked me about funding, uh, 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 you know, some caution around raising from uh, venture or from anybody that needs a quick return on their capital, um, especially if they're big voices in terms of how you're going to exit. And, um, you know, Stance is still a success story and it's still, and it's still growing uh, and it's profitable now, which is fantastic. I think it's going to be a while till we get back to that valuation we have with the Series D because that Series D was that revenue valuation and um and quite frankly you know what we realized when we shifted the methodology of valuations like selling a pair of socks even with a high gross margin is actually like an, a quite quite an expensive process right the act of fulfilling it is quite expensive and to get people to spend dollars on premium hosiery requires a lot of marketing input you know all these mm -hmm. things that mm -hmm. we didn't really evaluate the same way um you know then as we do now uh, but fortunately, you know, my, uh, one of the co-founders is still there and he's, he's running it as CEO and he's a done a tremendous job, uh, focusing on profitability, but you definitely don't have that same like excitement that you used to have when money just wasn't the, the issue or the concern. I mean, those are like that, that's sort of the caveat, right? It's so fun when you're flush with cash and like 
you could just do the most amazing events and like, you know, travel the world and like, you know, host people at a private lodge at, at bald face and snowboard the, like the best powder and like, do, you know, like things like that. We were just doing like every, every quarter. Um, and then you, and then you, and then you got to start making money and that changes things. Money changes everything, right? I know it does having it or not having it. <laughs> yeah. So kind of what I'm hearing too, is like, if you are in that season of your business where you're fighting to scale, like kind of enjoy that part too. And don't be mm-hmm. so quick to take the investment or take the money, like really get clear on why you're doing it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Great advice. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit to Future Stitch. So Stance China is part of the brand portfolio, as is Busaki, which is Rob Deerdeck's brand for all the people that used to watch his show. Is that still on? I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Crushing. Like <laughs> oh, 70% really? of the programming on MTV. Yeah. Oh, well. really? I like never watch TV anymore. I'm just like streaming Moana and Disney movies. So I have no clue. Um, <laughs> totally. Life with a toddler, right? You know, right. You me on that. I know. Um, yep. <laughs> and then Future Stitch. Future Stitch, excuse me, is also the manufacturer for Crocs socks, Yeezy socks, and Tom's socks. So how did you segue from Stance to founding Future Stitch? So in 2017, uh, after we raised our Series D, I I sort of, I don't know, I lost a little bit of my passion for what we were doing. Um, and I, I also like felt like there was a much bigger opportunity. And I think whenever you, you know, you think about the opportunities in front of you and, you know, you, you, um, you determine to go out and create a business, you should think about market size and like how disruptive you could be in that market. And I mean, the sock industry, now it's a $45 billion industry, the textile manufacturing industry, that's 11 trillion. It's one of the largest in the world. It's massive. Right. Um, and and so I felt like, okay, this is obviously a much bigger market. And so, you know, if I grow this thing to just be a fraction of this market, it could be a very sizable company. Um, but I think more than that, more than the economics, it was this industry is so archaic and so old. It's very similar to like the sock market when we started Stance. And I just felt like it just needed some disruption. And I, I had grown up in this environment of making things in factories that felt like confining concrete boxes with horrible insulation with ceilings that were like collapsing with like mold on the walls. Right. And of course I was very diligent in finding the best and we avoided sweatshops and we went with like the ones that paid better um, wages and that had accreditations from the best social compliance firms. But even still, it just like what I realized was these these like industry titans were focusing on direct investments with direct returns. And they, they just didn't understand the value of making indirect investments um, into indirect returns. And what I mean by that is like what you do with a brand, right? You, like you, you often do marketing activities that you just, it's hard to measure the return. It's, it's more of a qualitative thing, but oftentimes those things are the biggest um, differentiators into whether or not consumers actually accept your product. And what I realized was like, you know, my, my, on the economic side, um, productivity was such an important part of my ability to produce best quality product at the highest output, um, 
I'm sorry, retention as part of my productivity was a, an essential part of my output. And what I saw was like workers were leaving these factories like almost every single year. They get their New Year's bonus and they would go somewhere else, like the next highest bidder. And what I do is very, it's very capital intensive and it's very hard to learn. There's a learning curve that I can go several years. And so I decided, hey, I'm going to challenge some of these like old orthodoxies around like um, making the smallest investment possible to yield the highest, uh, you know, production uh, lot and instead focus on what if I get the best quality worker and I get that worker to stay? Like, what can I provide to them that's going to make them happy? That's going to enhance their creativity. That's going to inspire them to think individualistically. And which which is what I want to do on the social side, right? Like individualism is so important to who I am as a person. And especially in the area of the world that I chose to start my first factory is, is it's an area where there's a deficit of individuality. It's almost like um, it's a very authoritarian society. And while I didn't want to like superimpose like this imperialistic, like you do what I say, we have the best approach mentality. I do think that this is a humanistic approach, right? I think like, you know, giving somebody a, a platform to be able to learn and be able to grow and also be able to speak and um, bring up new ideas was something that I felt like was really meaningful to the community and to myself. And not to mention, I didn't want to work in a shithole. Like I didn't want to, like personally, selfishly, just to be completely clear, <clears throat> I want to work in a nice place too, you know? Yeah. Well, and and so, too, it's probably part of like your conscience, like knowing that you don't have workers that are sleeping in dormitories and going to work in like a concrete box that probably helps you sleep a lot better at night too, right? It's, it's one of the greatest returns I've received as, you know, in being an entrepreneur is the ability to create something for somebody that gives them an element of choice, that gives them more freedom and autonomy to choose yeah. where they want to go, what they want to do, how they want to operate. And, and it brings me no greater joy than like people who I've worked with, who I've given stock options to, who have become millionaires off of their stock options and have created full autonomy for their, for their lives on the basis of that, um, you know, th- that, that, um, that equity. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I spent way too much money, like, three times what I probably should have on a Well, three times the norm on a factory. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just one side, right? That's just one facet. It's like the, the infrastructure, you know, the classrooms and the basketball court and the galleries and the gym and the library and all that, you know, we're, that's valuable square f- footage. And this is a factory that's built with steel and aluminum and um, very progressive building materials that carry a, a very low environmental footprint. Yep. And, um, and so, you know, but I want to do is like create this mecca that would like draw the best sock people. And, um, you know, I did it. And then like three months later, we, you know, Trump launch, launches the trade war. And I'm like, oh, I'm screwed. Uh, all my lines of credit got pulled. I had major issues there. And then we get into the pandemic. And I'm like, I'm screwed again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this isn't going to work. Um, and then like, and then now we're up 80% year over year and we have no capacity and we've had to actually um, eliminate customers, 62% of our customer count. Wow. And of course we've like offboarded them in a, in a polite way, but we, we've just, we, we, we've restructured my model to be laser focused on um, brands that have very specific social causes and 
environmental causes that we can believe in. And, yeah. and, and so it's been like, honestly, so rewarding. And so, you know, I, I feel like I proved out that hypothesis that you invest well into, you know, your, your place of employment and create a culture. That's the second part. That's even more important than, than the infrastructure that allows them to learn and to foster, you know, cultivate good, you know, sort of eternal principles. And you're going to get people that'll stay and get people who are going to like, like n- never want to leave and who love their job so much that they're like willing to, um, you know, to, to bring up any ideas for improvement that come through their head. Well, so. for, for folks who maybe don't know a lot about the Chinese working conditions, like <laughs> you took such a radically different route when you were building this factory. So you have the highest lead certification there is. Everything's about sustainability. There's, you know, if you all didn't pick up on this, there's a library, there's a basketball basketball court on the roof, art gallery. You actually have a wall of all of the employees' photos, which is like mm-hmm. unheard of, right? So I, I'm curious too. I remember in business school learning about the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. Do you feel like that focus on triple bottom line really promotes more brand loyalty as well? Like, are people willing to go pay, you know, 15 bucks or whatever it is for a pair of socks, because they know that they're also not contributing to a sweatshop worker who's like living in a dorm and, you know, miserable? Like, do you think that that all plays into the success as well? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Like, no. (laughs) Excuse me. Okay, like, wait, let me let me so let me be clear. Like, I, I focus on people and the planet to make more profit. Um, and I, I found that when I put them first, the profit just follows, but it's also, but it's mainly because of my people, the consumer, like they're coming around to this idea. They say they're going to spend more, but like the people that say they'll spend more on origin story uh, or environmental cause only about 30% of those people actually vote with their wallet. Oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. And there's tons of studies done on it. I mean, there's, it's, 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 it's almost like it's, it's a differentiator for sure. Like if I had one of my products versus one of another that maybe didn't have those stories, the consumer largely will go for my product if it's the same cost, mm-hmm. but they don't tend to spend more. And I really hope that they will. Um, I think there's different ways to monetize fashion that will encourage this. I won't get too deep into this, but I have some plans on bringing out our own brand that's going to be completely different than how fashion has uh, monetized itself previously. Um, but yeah, I think that like most people, they love to talk social cause, but they don't actually pay. They're not willing to pay for it. Yeah, talking um, cheap. <laughs> it totally it is, but like yes, yeah, um, you know, but it doesn't matter. Like you still choose to do the right thing because I mean, statistics have proven that if you do the right things, you focus on those two areas first, you have more staying power for whatever reason. And you sort of future proof your business. I mean, there's a reason why we called it, you know, future stitch. Um, We wanted to create a better future. We wanted to stitch communities together to put your best foot forward uh, into the future. And, And we incorporate community events. We want people to sort of get involved with, the manufacturing process. I mean, we're, we're setting up a training center here um, within the women's um, jail in Orange County to provide education around manufacturing. There's f- far too few women that are getting employed out of the system. Um, I mean, the system's horrible to begin with. Um, and 
you know, we, we want to reintegrate them into society because we feel like it's, it's a good thing to do. Now, is it a story that's going to help us to sell more product? I don't know. But I know I, that I would pay more for that, but I'm in thank the, you. the 30%, I suppose. <laughs> right, right, right. But like, I know I'm going to get a workforce that's much more retentive because they're yeah. not given opportunities elsewhere. They're and you're much adding more so much value to the community, to those people. Like, there's just so many benefits outside of the bottom line. Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. Even like before we started recording, we were talking about like add value do good, the money follows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, I really believe that. And then, and two, like, let's just say it doesn't fully fall and you could have made money elsewhere. You're still going to be so much more satisfied with what you've done. Yes. I know so many, like most of my really wealthy friends are like, they get to the end of their journey and they, they can't figure out like why they did the things that they did and they feel selfish and they feel worthless. And I mean, some of them, like the more narcissistic types maybe um, are fine with where they're at. But like the vast majority of them that have just focused on, on money and not the people part or the planet part tend to like find themselves lost. Like, you know, meet like purposeless. And I find that's, I find that so sad, you know? So I'm trying to close your soul. Exactly. Exactly. Money ain't it. (laughs) No, it really isn't. It's usually the opposite. Yeah. God, isn't that true? That's why they say more money, more problems, right? That's <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I wanted to pivot to the pandemic too. So you briefly mentioned this and and I remember I met you right before COVID started. It was mm-hmm. Halloween. We met when our kids were trick-or-treating and yeah. you had mentioned that you were in China all the time. And mm-hmm. I, I learned in watching another interview, you were actually planning to move to China, build a home on top of the factory. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, how did COVID impact the track? Like, you probably haven't been to China that much. And I'm curious, like, are you still planning to move from St. Clemente to the top of a factory in China? I have to know. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not planning on moving. Um, We created quite an amazing structure here. And... You know, we have a team now of 20 and I have plans to hire, you know, over 100 in the next year. So no plans on moving. The idea behind the move was to, you know, to be on the front lines of taking this thing public. Now I'm focused less on that liquidity event and more on, um, you know, global assets and creating something that's going to stay stick around. I mean, my, my plan was actually never to go fully liquid myself. Um, the idea of going public there was to just, you know, I think... One, it's a great vehicle for marketing your company. Uh, 80% of the stockholders there are individuals. It's the opposite here. 80% are institutions. So you get a lot of marketing power, but also there's a lot of arbitrage. Like just t- The values are used to be insane. They've come down quite a bit. Um, but you know, you're able to sort of tap the market to fund things really easily. And I hated fundraising. Um, obviously I have a lot of opinions on fundraising, as you know, <laughs> um, and I just feel like, Hey, fundraising from the, the consumer is way easier. It's way better. Um, and if you have something that's, that's a powerful consumer story that people feel, you know, betters the world, I think that you can get a higher valuation to do greater things than say, you know, if you were just raising from VCs. Um, now I don't. I so I am working on some commercial real estate there. I haven't been to China since January of 2020. 
Um, wow. I have an amazing. I know. Oh my God. And you were going how often before? It sounded like once it was, a month. Wow. I was perpetually jet lagged. And <laughs> now I like, I drag it in on a flight. You know, I got, I had a backache, which is why I'm not in London. <laughs> like, I'm like, I love being home. I love being with family. And I think one thing we're going to get out of this as, you know, the pandemic as, as a result, I think a beneficial result is where I think we're realizing that, you know, local for local can work. And, you know, uh, people maybe don't need to travel as often as they used to. Yeah. Now, I do believe in globalism. I think that we should all, you know, be interested in each other's communities. I think that's important. But at the same time, I think we're going to, we've become a lot more efficient, just like, oh, you know, totally. utilizing the tools that we have, like we're using right now, you know, I would have never used something like this before. So, um, yeah, yeah I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the travel, but I will, we will set an office up in Europe and, um, and of course we have, you know, 400 employees in, in China. And so we'll continue to build it out. But my plan is to stay here as long as I possibly can. We're in the most beautiful place on the planet, in my opinion. Well, I'm We're glad lucky. you aren't moving. It's great to Thank have you. a member. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> really personally. But yeah, I mean, I just, I echo what you said so much. You know, Jeff has been a road warrior and I've been grateful for the pandemic, like a silver lining of it, as awful as it's been, is that he's been home way more. So yeah, mm-hmm. we got more efficient. It's it's a wonderful thing. Not that travel isn't wonderful, but you know, necessary travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So final you. question for you. I am such a proponent of entrepreneurs having good mentors and also paying it forward and and mentoring those that are coming up behind them. What would you say like advice wise, someone who's looking for a mentor, what should they be looking for when seeking one out? And what can they do to add value as a mentee? Because this is a two way street. All right. So first bit of advice is to go for top of class. I mean, the worst thing they can do is say no. And I've realized that like, in a lot of my success has come from putting myself out there and, and reaching for the top, you know, and I've done it. I have so many stories where I've reached out to famous CEOs or athletes, you know, where most people would say like, dude, they're never going to get back to you. Why even reach out? Right. Or like go through their agent or go through their assistant or whatever. And for whatever reason, they've picked up my calls or they met with me. And, and that has nothing to do with, with me other than just like having the audacity to reach out. My greatest mentor is a guy named Scott Olivet. And he, um, he was the youngest professor at Oxford university. Um, he, I think taught it for about five years and then he went on to um, work for Bain and then he uh, worked for Nike and he was like under Mark Parker um, as the guy responsible for all M&A. And then he became the CEO of Oakley and took it from 400 million to 2.4 billion and sold it in three years. Um, And he's like the smartest guy you could ever meet. And um, I remember I was trying to get his contact information from a mutual friend. And she's like, ah, don't be surprised if he doesn't get back to you. And I'm like, Hey, I'm going to reach out. I don't care. And I'm going to be persistent. And I did. And I was, and we now have three hour calls once a week. And he's like my main guy I go wow. to. And, um, and he would have thought, you know, because he's a very, very busy guy and obviously has tons of prospects. But I think what I've been able to deliver to him as a mentee, um, is I, I do what he says. I, I always act. I always follow up. I um, am very grateful. Um, I have a prepared agenda every time I send it to him a day before, um, you know, and I'll tell you, like just a handwritten note goes a long way. Like, I think 
gratitude, which is one of our cultural values here, is one of the most important things that you can um, have as a person. And so, you know, I think especially if, like this person is very busy, you know, just that handwritten note for whatever reason um, tends to create a, a sense of satisfaction because they don't, no matter how big they are and how many people follow them, they don't get those sort of things. So just like a personalized thoughts and thoughtfulness, right? Which is sort of something that's a deficit, I think, these days um, is what you need to embody. And I think you could really get almost anybody that you you want. Well, the other thing I heard you say, you didn't quite say it this way, but when looking for people to mentor, you want someone that's going to be coachable and that's hungry and isn't just like wasting the time. Like I'm sure that he sees all that you're doing and it's, it probably just fills his cup to know that he's playing even a small role in that. So Mm -hmm. uh, I love that. And so I have to ask you too, when you take on mentors, are those the qualities that you are not mentors, mentees, are those the qualities you look for? People who are like hungry, like well-prepared, grateful, coachable, like you probably exactly. need to check all those boxes or it's not worth your time. I would imagine. Exactly. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm in such a building phase. It's been hard for me to take on, you know, too many mentees, but there's a couple that I continually take phone calls from no matter. And, and, and one has a business that is tiny. Um, it was, it has nothing to do with the scale it has nothing to do with like wetting my appetite to like explore some new capitalistic adventure. It's been more like <laughs> this person has a great heart and he's trying to make a difference. And, um, and he's just a really good person. And when I say something, he's going to, he's going to listen and, you know, think about it. And oftentimes, um, you know, he does what I say and, and he, and, and he's been able to produce results that we've both been able to enjoy. And I find that really satisfying yeah. as a mentor. Yeah, I I think that there's no greater joy, honestly, than like coaching people, mentoring them, see the change happen in their lives. So it's wonderful that you're giving back that way. Mm, And you you. give back in other ways too. So on that note, like tell us about how people can connect with you, find your products, how they can support some of the causes that you're involved in, such as the Thirst Project or anything else that you want to do. Oh, yeah, gosh. Thirst Project is amazing. The most, the, the best run charity on the planet, in my opinion. Um, we build, build wells in Africa and only like two out of the thousands of the wells that we've produced have gone, uh, defunct, uh, because what we do is we, we provide all the operational know-how and all the parts and everything. Whereas like all the other water projects out there, um, tend to, you know, create wells that then aren't used within two years, at least 70% of them. Wow. Um, so I'm a big, big fan. Plus it's a youth run organization. So I'm, I get to be around like college students and speak to them and, feel their energy and you know, we teach them leadership um, and salesmanship. And I love that sort of thing. So uh, that's a, that's a big one. There's projects huge for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, more information on me and what I do, it's just futurestitch.com and there's always jobs that are opening and we're, we're on the hunt right now. You know, we want to bring back us textile manufacturing. We want to do it in a way that is totally different than how it's been done in the past, creating really meaningful employment opportunities that are going to give people who've lived maybe disadvantaged lives an opportunity to like, you know, uh, get a 50, 55, $60,000, uh, job straight out of the system. Um, I think that what we're doing with Kanye too, and Yeezy is interesting. Um, I mean, we're working with some of the best, the best brands out there and some of the most creative people. And I think long-term, um, you know, knock on wood, cause I, I know that the, the risks are real that who knows my entire business could be extinct in, in a matter of years. Um, but I do believe that, you know, what we're doing could, could be quite transcendent to the way, you know, 
individuals and companies manufacture things. And I love manufacturing because it's like one job creates three more. You know, making things is really important to society. It creates a lot of self-reliance and it's it's the biggest job creator in the US, even though it only represents 12% of, you know, the people here because we just, you know, we create so many jobs down the line. So I want to create more energy there and we want to be able to do a lot more small local for local projects where we micro-size factories and put them in urban areas. And, and I think you're going to see a lot of that. So if you have an interest in that sort of thing, please hit me up. Like, we need talented, creative people who want to address the industrial system of the United States. Oh, I love it. So what's the best way people could get in touch with you? Should they stalk you on LinkedIn, slide into DMs, email Yeah, you? LinkedIn's great. <laughs> LinkedIn's awesome. Either any of those things. Any, yeah, just hit me up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and just sharing your time and talents. I so enjoyed the stories that you told along the way too. Yeah, I'm going to be laughing about the LeBron story for another few days at least. So um, yeah, just appreciate you coming on so much. This was wonderful. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If today's episode added value to your life in some way, please subscribe, leave a five-star review and share it with someone who needs this. I'd love to connect with you on Instagram and hear how the show has inspired you. So tag me or slide into the DMs. Find me at Corporate Dropout Official or Alessia Citro. That's A-L-E-S-S-I-A-C-I-T-R-O and two underscores. Until next time, remember that you're a badass. Stay focused, stay hungry, and dare to drop out.